Welcome to Essential Salt, a podcast that brings you stories reported on by students at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. This series is produced by Maine Public in partnership with Salt. I'm your host, Lucy Suchak. In each episode of Essential Salt, we'll bring you stories that go beyond the headlines to capture something true, something unexpected, something essential about the state of Maine and the people who live here. Let's get started. Maine's iconic 100-mile wilderness and the Allagash Wilderness Waterway are just specks in the vast swath of land that is Maine's rugged and unpredictable woods. It's not just the mountains and woods, but the North Atlantic coastal seas too, that offer extreme tides and a treacherous setting for the bustle of Maine and Canadian seafaring. In this episode, we'll explore the beasts who were built for the wild settings around us, and how their fates are impacted by not just human actions, but human beliefs. Episode 4, Into the Great Maine Wild. Campobello Island pokes into the Bay of Fundy, just northeast of the border between New Brunswick and Maine. From there, the Campobello Whale Rescue Team has headquartered their life-saving operations. Since 2002, whales trapped in fishing gear in the North Atlantic have stood a chance of survival, thanks to the courageous work of folks like Mackie Green. Rescuing whales can be both heartwarming and heart-wrenching. But as Mackie's longtime partner in whale rescue once said, Sometimes you're made for this. So intense. I mean, it's, it's really the, the hair standing up on the back of your neck a lot of times. They can be real vocal when they get stressed, so sometimes they're screeching at you, you know, trying to get away from you. It's pretty controlled chaos is how we like to explain it, I guess. But, uh, and we've had people tell us we're crazy. When Captain Mackie Green is saving whales, he must be precise. He must have focus. He must be confident. Sharks have been swimming around, and you, you're just so focused, so intense, you don't see anything else but what you're, what you're doing. It's our fault that the whales are getting tangled up. And, uh, I mean, and, and being a fisherman myself, I, I don't want fishing to stop. It's a way of life. I love it. And, and I, I think the whales are a big telltale of the health of the oceans. Everything's here for, for a reason. So if we keep losing things, you know, then uh, it's going to hurt all of us eventually. Campobello Island is a tiny Canadian town in the Bay of Fundy. Mackie grew up here, and he says come summer... The bay is filled with whales. He actually remembers the first time he saw one. Well, I can remember, you know, mackerel fishing off the wharf again, 10, 12, maybe 13 years old. And uh, the first time I actually see two or three come in really close by the wharf so you could almost jump on their backs. When Mackie started running whale watching tours in the 90s, he got to know these whales on a personal level. We have Slice, he's a minke whale that's lost his dorsal fin, it's been cut right off. We have a, a minke whale we call Gonzo, he likes to breach, he goes a little, a little crazy sometimes. His dorsal fin is sort of shaped like Gonzo's nose off the Muppets. And uh, we have a big old fin back we call Grumpy Gus. He stays off by himself, he stays down a long time. One day, about 20 years ago, Mackie was leading a tour and saw a whale caught in some fishing lines. When a whale gets tangled, it can be hard for them to move. 
so they often drown or starve. So Mackie calls the New England Aquarium, and a few people come out to help him untangle the whale. It was Mackie's first whale rescue. Soon after, he and his close friend Joe Howlett gathered a group of local fishermen and started the Campobello Whale Rescue Team. We experienced stuff that, together that no one else would probably even believe, let alone ever happen again. Joe was also a fisherman, and he served in the Coast Guard. Mackie and Joe's combined experience on the water made them the perfect duo. Joe was a good friend and great guy, and, and uh, you knew when Joe was around because you could hear him, you know, just laughing and joking, even when he was saving whales. He wasn't a morning person, so he might be a little slow to his head, uh, you know, a few cups of coffee. Joe and I were real competitive, so we were always torturing each other. And uh... Mackie remembers one time when they were out saving a whale. Joe missed an easy toss with some gear, and Mackie said he threw like a girl. Later, Joe got his revenge when Mackie made the same mistake. He said, uh, don't ever tell me I throw like a girl again. We were really good friends, but people looking from a distance probably wouldn't think so. So that's what drove us, I think. We were so competitive, you couldn't miss, you couldn't screw up because we were going to get teased by the, the other guy. The team was always pushing each other to be better so that each rescue could be a success. Because at the end of the day... You're just ecstatic. You know, I'm not uh, usually too excitable. But yeah, you know, you usually end up jumping up and down. Your arms are up in the air. Coming home, we're going 40 knots in this open Zodiac, and we're hollering back and forth to each other, and I think they could hear us all over the Bay of Fundy. Mackie and Joe loved what they did. In fact, they'd often talk about the day when their sons would take over the team. I knew it was dangerous, but you, you don't really think about that when you're doing that sort of thing. It's like fishing. You know boats boats sink every day, but if you thought that boat was going to sink, you wouldn't leave in the morning. You wouldn't get aboard of it. So you always got that mentality that it, it's not going to happen to, you know, to us. Whale rescue is kind of like the ocean version of a volunteer fire department. But instead of burning buildings, the team is approaching an animal that weighs up to 70 tons and is extremely agitated. On top of that, they are working in a 24-foot inflatable boat in unpredictable conditions. Sometimes, rescues can take hours. We were five and a half hours cutting. Uh, it was severely entangled, one of the worst. Hours. When land is out of sight, everyone is soaking, and the boat is rocking to its tipping point. Last summer, things were already looking difficult. More right whales than usual were turning up dead on the beaches. By July, the death count was already up to seven. And during the course of a week, Joe went on two separate rescues. This time, he was working with the fishery department rather than Mackie and his usual team. On the 5th of July, he untangled one whale. Then... On July 10th of the second right whale in a week, you know, which is unheard of. And uh, he had cut the whale clear and, and uh, he turned around and gave thumbs up to everybody. And the whale made a, made a big flip and, and just brought his tail down, down on, the, on the front of the boat, you know, on Joe. Joe was killed. It's one of the biggest funerals I've ever seen here. Uh, the population of the island's seven, eight hundred, and there was over 400 people to his funeral. After, Mackie decided to take some time off from whale rescue 
Last summer, I didn't want nothing to do with, with whale rescue after Joe's accident. He was a good friend and, 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 and all that, and, and just, uh, yeah, so it's, that, was, that was tough. But Now, he's not so sure about his son taking over the team. I'd love to see my son do it, but I, I'm, I'm scared of him trying to do it as well, right? You know, because yeah. it is dangerous, so. He's even started to question his relationship with whales in general. Makes you wonder, you know, I, th- I thought we were, we were all friends there, but after last summer, I don't know. But Mackie still gets excited when he talks about whales. He leans in to tell me a story about his favorite rescue with Joe. This time when the team saved a whale named FDR. It worked out great. We were five and a half hours cutting. Uh, it was severely entangled, one of the worst, you know, entanglements anybody had ever seen. So everybody sort of had the, the whale rode off. Before we even get there, we had pictures and and uh, reports of what we were, were up against. So we were thinking, like, holy cow, you know, not much we can do, but we'll try. And like I say, that one was probably the best one because it was the whole team working together, and it was the last time that the whole team did work together on a whale and, and was successful, so. Now, the whales are heading back to the Bay of Fundy, and Mackie is ready to start rescues again. I'm really going to have to push myself to do it. Like I say, and I am scared. I'm not, I'm not, not, uh, not scared to admit it. Someone's got to keep doing this. Until we get more people trained in the area to do it, we're going to, have to, going to have to keep going. I think we all know it's going to be a test, and we're all going to definitely be thinking of Joe. This next rescue, he says, will be for Joe. And Joe was just so enthusiastic. He was every bit as enthusiastic about it as I am, and probably more. I remember he, uh, he cut a right whale clear one day, and, and he hollered, I was made for this. Yeah, it was just one of the lucky ones. So that was just one cut. You know, like we got there, we wasn't there five minutes. The whale came up, sailed right up the whale, one cut, and the whale swam away from the gear. That piece was from Stephanie Cohn. Today, Stephanie is the senior producer and instructor at Dustlight Productions, where she worked on Mother Country Radicals, which won the Audio Storytelling Prize at the 2022 Tribeca Film Festival. In 2014, the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife was trying to solve a puzzle. What was causing Maine's moose population to decline? Tim Peterson, former Salt Institute student and current producer at Wisconsin Public Radio, spoke with scientists, local hunters, and shop owners that cater to tourists who ask, where can I see a moose? But as Tim uncovers, it's been harder and harder to answer that question. In this Essential Salt story, we look back at the first stages of solving the mystery. Where have all the moose gone in Maine? That's Sheridan Oldham doing her best moose call. She's president of the 700-member Rangeley Guides and Sportsmen's Association. Moose hunting is a very special kind of -of once-in-a-lifetime event. But she likely won't be hunting moose again anytime soon. Like a lot of people here in Rangeley, 
a resort town in Maine's western mountains. She's worried the moose population is dropping fast. And when the moose go, so do the tourists. Ask anyone in town. A live moose is way more viable up here than a dead moose. Gerald White has owned River's Edge Sports in the Rangeley village of Aquasic for 12 years. We talked inside his shop, where stuffed moose, lynx, and wolves gaze out blankly over shelves of fish lures, bear spray, and hunting bows. Most tourists come up here to see moose, and I have them coming into my shop here all the time, asking where can we go see a moose, and it's hard to tell them a place to go now. Pretty much could send them down any of the roads uh, four or five years ago, and you're, you know, you're bound to see a moose, but that's not the case anymore. A decade ago, it was not uncommon to see six or ten moose uh, either in or along the snowmobile trails in this area. Uh, this winter I've seen two, all winter long. <laughs> Sherry's association petitioned the Department of Inland Fish and Wildlife to put hold on hunting permits until the herds build back up. The DIFW already has scientists looking into it. We can't just look out the window and make assumptions about what's going on. We have to have numbers that have some statistical significance. That's Lee Cantor, head moose biologist for the DIFW. In 2010, his office began helicopter surveys, a first for the state. That work has offered a rough headcount, anywhere from 60 to 70,000 moose. But that's a minor part of population problem solving. We need to uh, figure out a way to, uh, you know, estimate and assess over time, you know, survival rates of adult females and calves. So in January, Lee began a new study focused on this group. With help from a contractor called Aerotech, they captured over 60 moose that they fitted with GPS collars and released. I'm riding with Lee on a commercial logging road in Greenville, south of Moosehead Lake. He got an email the night before, generated from the collar of a moose that had died. Within 48 hours, he has to find the animal, take tissue samples, and get those to the University of Maine Animal Health Lab. Out in the brisk February morning, the cold gets into your lungs quickly. The biologists unload snowmobiles from their idling trucks, parked nose to tail just off the side of the road. We ride about 20 minutes towards the caller's signal, then snowshoe into the forest. Sunlight and wind are diffused through the branches intersecting like a tangled wooden web. We're in moose habitat, which has changed dramatically since the 1970s. When an epidemic of spruce budworm defoliated millions of acres of the North Woods, there was massive clear-cutting. And the forest grew back much thicker, just how moose like it. The moose population uh, basically went almost exponential. That's Doug Kane, one of the Greenville biologists. So it's ideal conditions for the ticks to grow as well, because they don't have to go very far to, to find another host. Certainly, this is one of Mother Nature's ways of creating balance. Moose can withstand temperatures of 20 to 30 below freezing, but that's with a full coat of hair. Too many ticks and their skin gets so irritated, they rub the hair right off. The thermal regulation now just keeping warm. The energy that it takes to survive is much more difficult. After 40 minutes, we found the dead cow. She's on her right side in the snow, a hind leg hooked around a young red spruce. The men replace their buckskin mittens with latex medical gloves and begin the exam. Our, our approach for the, for the necropsy is to 
skin back one side of the moose above the, the rib cage and everything, just taking the skin back so we can kind of have a view of it. And then start going through all the various organs, trying to note um, everything along the way. Come on, Spleen. Lee and the other Greenville biologist, Scott McClellan, hand samples to Doug for bagging and labeling. The lungs stand out. They're deep beet red, peppered with pinhead-sized white spots. Golly, look at those lungs. Yeah. Jiminy Christmas. That's Scott, who grew up around moose in Maine's North Country. They have either tapeworm or lungworm cysts, which, which are enveloped around a larva. Um, that's what all these spots right here. Her, uh... The lungworm parasite can cause pneumonia or bronchitis, but it wouldn't kill the animal. They cut into the cow's femur and find another trouble sign. This whitish material in the middle, that still has some fat in it. Doug again. But not a lot. She's using some of her fat because of her energy demands during winter. You know, the load of the ticks, all the parasites, and she was lactating the summer with a calf. There's a calf with her, so that's a high energy demand. Basically, this cow died of exhaustion. But there's no smoking gun at the scene. The biologists have to wait for the lab results to see if her death supports a trend or not. Driving back, Lee tells me there's no estimate on the lab turnaround. He thinks the herd is probably healthy, but doesn't discount feedback from the Rangeley guides and others. We encourage and want to hear from people. You know, we answer emails, phone calls, we give talks. And in the last two years, the DIFW has reduced the Rangeley region hunting permits from 60 to 15. That wasn't Lee's recommendation. It was a response to the guides speaking up. His research is just part of the ongoing discussion of what's best for the animal. It takes a lot to put that together, and there's a lot of weight on your shoulders to get that done and do it right. The mortality study is scheduled to run for over five years. And at the end of it, they'll have a better idea of whether the moose are actually in trouble or just masters of disguise. In 2022, Maine Public reported that winter ticks wiped out nearly 90% of the moose calves scientists tracked in part of Maine the previous year. Counterintuitively, the state is now looking into whether thinning the moose herd may actually be the best chance to save this iconic species. Our last story comes from Jack Rodolico, now a producer and reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio. In 2011, Jack met with Wally Jacobus of Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife to learn why some people find it hard to believe that the eastern cougar is truly gone from the state's wilderness. Wally's email inbox at the time was full of photos of cougar sightings in Maine, or so people claimed. But according to the research of Mark McCullough, an endangered species scientist, all evidence points to a different truth. If the eastern cougar has been gone for the last 100 years or more, how do we account for the overwhelming record of cougar sightings in Maine? Is it the nature of the beast, our obsession with big cats, or something else?
Roddy Glover and Rosemary Townsend live 100 miles from each other in Maine. They've never met. Roddy's hunted everything with four legs. Rosemary says she doesn't know much about wildlife. But both claim they had a chance encounter with nature's perfect predator. And I was just contemplating what a beautiful sight the pond was because it looked like little diamonds dancing with the sun sparkling on it. And I'm looking up the tracks, and I can see something moving. And as it got closer, I could see this too. And um, an animal walked out on the far side. At first, I thought they were like dogs. But he did have a certain slink to him, which I thought was a little odd for a dog. And as it got closer, those ain't dogs. Those ain't even walking like dogs. Stocky legs, a tawny color. Those are big, big cats. He made eye contact because he was only about 50 yards from me. But I just got my heart pumping, that's all. You know, you just seeing what I'm seeing. Rosemary and Roddy's sightings are on file with Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Oh, let's see this one. This might be the one that we're talking about. Wally Jacobus, the department's lead mammal biologist, showed me some cougar photos people had emailed him over the years. Oh, big cat by barn. I know what this is. This is, I think this is another house cat one. Yep, there it is. There it is. Okay, so what is it? Is it a cougar or is it a kitty? Of the 80 photos in Wally's inbox, none shows a cougar in Maine. Instead, there are deer, coyotes, bobcats, dogs, and yes, plenty of kitties. This happens all the time. There's an idea that cougars are so elusive, hard evidence of their presence is tricky to come by. But where cougars live out west and down in Florida, There are tracks, photos, dead deer, and cougar roadkill. They get hit by cars all the time. None of this is reported in Maine. Oh, cougars have their own place on the mantle for crazy stories, right? (laughs) It's it's hard to, to top them. This doesn't happen with bears or coyotes or squirrels and chipmunks. Just cougars. So if the cougar's been gone for 100 years, why is it living on in our imaginations? Two hundred years ago, nothing in Maine was more feared than the catamount, or cougar, the only animal known to stalk humans. That earned catamounts some intimidating nicknames. Indian Devil, Screamer, Ghost Cat. Historical records from the 1800s read like ghost stories. Some likewise being lost in the woods have heard such terrible roarings as have made them much aghast, which must either be devils or lions. They were suddenly aroused by a piercing shriek a short distance away. As the dreaded sound came nearer and nearer, the camp was thrown into a panic. I heard his shrill screech, like that of a woman in distress. I heard the same screech and saw the same track again not far off. I think the animal was a catamount. Soon after, there were sounds of conflict, and hurrying to the scene found his dog in the throes of death, almost torn to shreds. The residents are in a terrified condition and dare not venture out after nightfall. This ferocious beast led curdling yells. A large panther. Then the record gets quiet. By 1900, forests were chopped down for farms and deer were nearly eradicated. With no habitat or food, catamounts had few places to hide. And because large predators were seen as a threat, they were exterminated throughout the country. But a few catamounts hung on in the Northeast. What's widely considered to be the last eastern cougar was seen on the main Quebec border in 1938. It was shot. The science says there's no evidence of a cougar population in Maine. But there are two glitches in the data. Roddy Glover and Rosemary Townsend, the people you heard from earlier. 
they actually saw cougars. It was confirmed by tracks and DNA evidence. So if there are no eastern cougars, why are there still cougars in the east? I decided to go talk to Ann about this. Morning, how are you? Good. We walk by her house with her five huge dogs. Look at that guy. Wow. So what kind of dog is he? It's an English Mastiff. Walk through the containment gate in her backyard. And that's where I met her cougar. And then I met her other cougar. Anne asked me not to use her last name because she knows of exotic pet owners who've been harassed. She lives out on a rural highway. You'd have no idea there are two 120-pound cats in her backyard. You know, we want to be what's called responsible owners. And Anne's one of a small handful of residents in Maine who legally own a pet cougar. No one knows how many illegally kept cougars are in Maine or anywhere else. One estimate says 1,000 east of the Mississippi. I think the illegal people who own these cats probably have a dog kennel. I'm going to say within a year they've probably figured out they're way in over their heads. Um, and what starts to happen in that year that really makes you start well, to realize? They, their power, their strength, their size, their ability to jump, the amount of food they eat. Um, the expense? The expense is huge, uh, enormous. You know. Um, Once they're in over their heads, no one really knows what illegal owners do with their cats. Some are probably sold, some are euthanized. But there have been documented cases of escape or release. She's beautiful. The illegal cougar trade leads to legit sightings and perpetuates the myth that cougars are out there, says Mark McCullough. Mark was doing research for a paper about cougars, and he decided to poke around online for cougars for sale. Did you get a lot of middle-aged women looking for younger oh, men? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know what a <laughs> blue-haired cougar was <laughs> until I got into this. This is amazing. Mark's an endangered species specialist with the Federal Department of Fish and Wildlife. This spring, his paper declared the eastern cougar extinct. He believes we might share a collective cultural guilt for persecuting large, mysterious animals, and that contributes to why we see them. There's no doubt that there is something more to the phenomenon of the eastern cougar and why it persists in, in our psyche, even though it's been gone for 100 years or more. So, and I think what that is, when you, when you really drill down, is, is hope. We all hope. It's just part of what we are as a species. Hope is part of who we all are. I, I think Mark is on to something there. Keel Kemper is a regional biologist for the state. He's gone out on lots of cougar calls. But, we, but we're so getting into arena that, that most biologists are fairly uncomfortable being in. But there are those among us who are much more free-spirited and are much more willing to seek out their animal totem, if you will, and go and commune with them. If there's no physical evidence on the scene, Keel says it's useless to tell somebody that they didn't see what they think they saw. They saw it, he says, not him. Keel also points out all large animals have a passionate fan club. But he says there's a difference with cougars. In true cougar country, the cats are often seen as a hazard, whereas in Maine... Where they still remain as a gossamer, ghost-like experience, it's very easy to be enthralled with that passion. But if one's standing outside the door, I don't think you're going out the door and give him a big hug. You know, I think you're like going to realize that, you know, this critter can kill me and eat me. Keel's still faced with a dilemma, though. Most calls come from articulate, sober adults. He says escape pets are the most logical conclusion to legit sightings, 
But if it shows up in your yard and your children are out there playing, you really don't care what the origin of it was. That is the most logical explanation, but that then just starts the question, now what? In every state between Maine and the Mississippi River, people swear they saw a ghost cat. And some of them are right. But here's an anecdote. In 1978, in the Netherlands, a red panda escaped from a zoo. Word got out through the news, and soon 100 people called in sightings from all over Holland. The little red panda was found soon enough. It had been hit by a train a few hundred yards from the zoo. The cougar reinforces a universal truth. There is no more imperfect match than proof and belief. Central Salt is a production of the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies at the Maine College of Art and Design in partnership with Maine Public. Essential Salt is produced by Lucy Santerre and me, Lucy Suchek. The role of contributing writer and editor is aptly filled by Isaac Kestenbaum, the director of The Salt. Our Essential Salt theme song is by Q Shop. You can find more music for storytelling at CUE. Shop.com. Find Essential Salt at mainpublic.org/salt or wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. On our next episode of Essential Salt, the unknown takes center stage: a yeti, a close encounter with aliens, and spirits left behind—real, unproven, or simply fiction. And then Chuck Rack said, "What the blank is that?" Well, we all turned in the direction that Chuck was at. And I saw this light. But those are stories for another day. I'm Lucy Suchek. Thanks for listening. <laughs>